Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Everyone either knows or suspects that politics is a very dirty, sometimes dangerous business. Certainly there are no saints in American politics, but my guest today comes closer to being one than virtually anyone I know of in that arena. When Dennis Kucinich became the youngest mayor in Cleveland, Ohio's history at the age of 31, he undertook an epic battle against corruption for the people of his city that lasted for years and cost him two marriages, his job, and on several occasions, almost his life. In the telling of his story, in an extraordinary new book titled The Division of Light and Power, Kucinich lays bare the lies, the dirty tricks, and the layers upon layers of corruption he encountered in his quest to save Cleveland's municipal electric power system from being privatized, because that would have resulted in big rate hikes for Cleveland residents and major revenue losses for the city. The book reads like a political thriller, but also seems to be a detailed template exposing how corruption works in towns and cities across the country. So today, listen carefully to what Dennis Kucinich has to say because at least some parts of it are likely relevant to what's happening right now in your city or town. And if you pay attention, you'll know where to look for the crooks and corruption. Welcome, Mr. Kucinich. Thank you very much. I, I'm very grateful for your introduction and it's good to have a chance to spend some time with you. This book is amazing. And um, I mean, truly it's at once you know, it kind of once filled me with despair because you realize how massive corruption the corruption is, I mean, at all levels, but also because it filled me also with inspiration because you can, it, your story is the story of how one person can break through a lot of that corruption. And I think that this is some, a book that a lot of people should read to really get a good idea of how things work behind the scenes. And I think I th the first thing I wanna do before we get to the nut story about your fight with this, uh, with this utility company, this private utility company, I just want you to talk about the corruption generally that you encountered in uh, City Hall uh, when A, when you at 21 became a council member and what some of these other older guys were telling you when you walked in, and then B, the tour that you took when you became mayor, the tour of City Hall you took and all the things you encountered, just so people get an idea of the, you know, the water that you were swimming in when you came up against this big uh, battle that you waged. Well, um, again, Christina, thank you so much to, for a chance to be on your show. Uh, it's important to know that, you know, when I, when I got into uh, public life, I came from uh, a background, my parents never owned a home, we were renters, we, as a family grew to seven children, we ended up having to move on and on and on, so that by the time I was 17, we lived in 21 different places, including a couple cars. Uh, nevertheless, I was able to uh, find a way actually through scrubbing floors at, uh, at local schools 
to be able to uh, pay a tuition bill for myself and my uh, siblings so that I could go to a Catholic school. And, um, and, and that, uh, it's not so much the religious education, but the ethical education that I received as a young person uh, gave me a certain view about right and wrong. Uh, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not a holier than now kind of person. I just, I look at things as they are. And if it's wrong, I recognize it. And, you know, I got into public life and I saw things that I thought, well, wait a minute, it's not the way it's supposed to be. People, who, when you get elected, you aren't supposed to be told, well, hey, you got all kinds of opportunities here to make some money, kid. Uh, you, uh, uh, and you got to vote right. If you vote right, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, you play ball. And, and, you know, I, I mean, I suppose uh, I, uh, <laughs> the beginning of my uh, book is a study in naivete. On the other hand, when you're young and you get involved in something, uh, you're just learning. You don't necessarily you know, know what the system is like. And so I got into it. And what I found is that it was a... Uh, it was structured to be able to reward those who were insiders. Uh, but when they were rewarded, the people they represented, I'm sorry. That's okay. When they were rewarded, the people who um, they represent were punished. And the, the distribution of public resources, which takes place within government, is often on the basis of whether or not public officials accept certain gifts from uh, interest groups or not, uh, and whether or not those uh, public officials will then act in accordance with the uh, desires and the concerns of those interest groups. Well, that's so what you ran into. I mean, that's what you saw. And they were saying, you know, you've got to be one of us or, or you know, you're going yeah. to run into you got to play ball you got to yes. go get along and all that was there and you know for me i'm looking around i'm going well wait a minute i i came here to represent people and to speak about their needs about about making sure that the, they that police responded on time in an emergency making sure that the housing was kept up that the streets were repaired that the street lights were on that the catch basins were clean and all those things that involved uh, municipal housekeeping and delivery of services to people. And that, you know, that was the first level of understanding I had of my job. And right away, I'm being told, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, there's other opportunities here. You, maybe you hadn't thought about, well, I hadn't thought about them and I wasn't interested in them. And so uh, again, because I had a certain idea of, of purpose in service, I, I had zero I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty unshakable too. And, and that, that's one thing that interested me is after city council, when you became mayor, the first thing you did was you took a tour of city hall and you were running into, you know, people sleeping at their desks, people smoking doobies on a job. Um, and then you learned about, you know, cops and, and you know, the, the corruption that they were involved in taking, taking uh, money. And I, I mean, it was just, there was just massive corruption all, all around you. And yet you just sort of 
I don't know. I mean, talk about that. What was it like to, and you, and you did address, you did address some of it. I mean, I, I, you actually at one point took a camera, as I recall. Could you tell that story about how you took the camera and you filmed? When I, you know, before, in between the time that I was a councilman, I was elected to city council at age 23. In between the time that I, I was a councilman and mayor, I held an office, uh, it's a judicial office, the clerk of the Cleveland Municipal Courts. And as soon as I got in there, a woman who was operating the switchboard, and this is the old PBX, you pull a cord and you enter another cord and you connect people and you, uh, it's easier to uh, explain to those who you know have done it, but the lady who was operating the PBX. Rita. Came, uh, Rita came to me and she said, um, you know, I, I heard something and I have to tell you, and I, uh, long story short, what I learned is that uh, one of the employees of the clerk's office was uh, lifting cases from the file. Now in the Cleveland Municipal Court, uh, all, all the folders are prepared for a judge the day of a trial. And, you know, there's many different trials and the judge will call up each case. Well, if there's a case listed on the docket, uh, he expects the file to be there. If the file's not there, he just, you know, dismisses the case and puts a notation in the margin that says NP, which means no papers. Right. So when, when, I, when I got into the clerk's office, I saw notation after notation, NP, 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 what's this going on? It means the papers were, uh, weren't there. What, why, why not? So Rita uh, was tipped off and I found out that, uh, uh, that a certain employee was removing the files. And so early on, I just took a camera over to clerk's office and uh, at the what I understood to be the appointed hour of his visit to the files room. And as soon as he showed up through the door, I heard the file cabinet start to uh, open. And uh, and files, you could hear the movement because everything was was totally quiet. You could hear everything very easily. And so I heard the I heard the files being removed. So I popped up, I greeted him and I, and I uh, with a camera, I took his picture and I also uh, had a piece of paper, which was uh, a resignation. Uh, I did, he didn't say, he didn't say anything. I, I mean, there was very few words, there were very few words exchanged. I handed him the resignation. He looked at it, he signed it on the spot. <laughs> Done. And, and, you know, now, could he have been prosecuted? Absolutely. But I, there were things going on in the, in the office that I had to get straightened out. And, and I would have been mired in, in a case involving this person. And I just felt, well, you know, look, those jobs were great jobs. They weren't just good jobs. They were great jobs. They paid very well. They had wonderful benefits. The hours were good. And he just threw it away. Now, you know, uh, I you had that. you had bigger fish to fry and Rita well yeah, I did. Oh, absolutely and you yeah. actually told Rita you know hey you're not supposed to be because she was listening in on conversations that's how she was getting intel about corruption that you that you addressed but I, at the right. same time you were telling Rita you know you're not supposed to do that yeah I, I I felt like you know we're not snoopers or eavesdroppers I said look I, I don't want you listening in on these calls and of course 
It wasn't too long. Rena couldn't we help herself. Again, you know, sheepishly, apologetically, uh, and told me the story of somebody who was uh, fixing uh, uh, tickets, uh, not parking tickets, uh, traffic tickets. DUI tickets, yeah. Traffic. And and so uh, the, she routed the call to my office uh, uh, instead of to the guy's desk uh, who was doing the fixing. I, I impersonated uh, his voice. I set up a rendezvous and we met with the uh, person with whom uh, our employee had been engaged. And I, you know, basically read him the riot act, said, stay the heck away from our employees, go pay here. You know, I, I handed him, I, I, I told him pay all those tickets now. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to hear anything about this again, or you're going to, you and, and everybody involved in this is going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, we put a stop to that. Uh, the other thing was, uh, as I record in the clerk's office, I'm driving back from that particular episode and I'm in the basement of the police station and there's somebody who was stopped there and I thought he had a flat tire. He was, because uh, he was had his trunk open and, and uh, I thought, well, you know, and he was standing behind. I thought maybe there was some mechanical problem with his car. Turned out it was one of my employees. There was no mechanical problem. He had a trunk full of machine guns uh, in the basement of the justice center. That he was selling. That he was selling it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's, you know, that's I mean, that, kind of- That was yeah. before I got to be mayor. <laughs> I mean, right. So, so you're in this maelstrom of everybody for himself doing all this stuff, you know, and then you start the fight of your life, right? With the Literally. electric illuminating company. So explain what you started discovering. I mean, I think it started with blackouts, right? Yeah, as a, the book opens up on, on a uh, scene where uh, myself and my wife were shopping in downtown Cleveland during Christmas time. And, you know, all of us know from our shopping experiences, particularly in a big city, Christmas is just so exciting and the lights are so dazzling. And then all of a sudden, boom, everything's out. Blackout. Like a third world country. Well, uh, you know, some of them don't have lights, but we, but, but we had uh, these beautiful Christmas lights. The whole thing went out. I go, what's going on here? So I, I had not yet taken office, but I had been elected to city council at age 23. And I called the Muni Light. Uh, and he, you know, and he answered the division of light and power. Well, that's, that's the, the public utility utility. Yeah. And that's the title of the book, of course, yeah. division of light and power. Uh, okay. This is uh, Dennis Kucinich, you know, I'm the new council. And the guy tells you, hold on, hold on. Uh, he says, I know, you know, you're, you beat Belinsky, but you're not in yet. And I said, look, we got all these lights off. What's going on? Number six boilers out. Uh, and then he explains to me that CEI, the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, the competitor to the city's system, wouldn't provide the city with an interconnect, a backup in the event of a power fill. So, there, so the way it works is if you have a, um, a power system and there's a, a, a failure on this mechanical failure on the system, you're supposed to be able to just plug into some other place. And get the power. It's a there's a national grid that allows that to happen, except in Texas. <laughs> but 
but we but we couldn't get power from outside because CEI was blocking the city from doing that. And we were tied and essentially tethered to this private system to provide us with an interconnect, a backup, and they were dragging their feet on that. And then, uh, uh, and so this boiler operator was explaining that to me in a shorthand. I got in the city council and I found out that the that CEI was blocking the city from making repairs to its generators and boilers, that CEI uh, was, was helping to forestall any improvements in the system, that they were stopping the city from buying power from outside, that they were, um, uh, that when the city had to buy power from CEI, CEI was tripling the cost of the city, what they charged anyone else for emergency power. So they had a program, a plan to, to knock out the city's electric system. And then at last, they, had a, they were able to convince enough people in council to sell it at a cut rate. It's, it was worth at least a quarter of a billion dollars. They wanted to sell it for 88.1 million. Think about that. At that point, I got involved. I said, wait a minute, you know, this is wrong. And I started organizing a campaign to save the, the municipal electric system. Well, what had happened, the minute that happened, I'm at home, this very house, just about in the same spot, a high-powered rifle shot misses my head by a fraction. And- um, Who do you think did that? Well, at that point, I had no idea. But when I became mayor and was informed of an, of an actual plot, that was later unconfirmed by uh, the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Organized Crime, uh, studying the crime in the Midwest. The head of police intelligence told me that the plot was all about Muni Light, that I was stopping some people from making a lot of money. Yeah, so it was a local mob guy, right? Tony Satini or something? Tony well, no, let me just tell you the way okay. that worked. We didn't really know about it in Cleveland until we were tipped off by the Maryland State Police who found out that this plot was going on. And so, um, uh, you know, and there, was, there were just a series of meetings and, and uh, to try to set up an event. I, 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 I didn't speak about it publicly. You mean a set up a hit? Yeah, a hit. Right. And, right. And so, I, I never spoke about it publicly, but I was being advised by the police, and it's all documented. The police intelligence reports uh, are, are all there. I, I uh, so I understood at some point that the stand that I took in favor of the people having their own electric system was putting me in physical jeopardy. Uh, you know, I, I. Couldn't let that stop me, but it does get your attention. And uh, I still focused on what my duties were, but it was one of those hazards that you don't really think about uh, entertaining when you're uh, holding uh, the office of mayor of a city. Uh, and 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 what what was it all about? Well, the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company wanted to take over our electric system because they were running into financial problems, making payments on a nuclear, pow a nuclear power plants that they had built. 
that were not working. The plants were neither used nor useful. They needed the extra revenue that would come from, you know, another 46,000 plus customers be able to bring them in, increase the rates for those customers, wipe out the yardsticks, increase the rate. Uh, 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 because the, yeah, because your rates, the muni rates were much lower than twenty percent cheaper, twenty percent right. cheaper. Okay. So you wipe out the yardstick, and then you you raise everybody's rates again, and you have more revenue. And so this was a, uh, um, and and the victory that they wanted over municipal power. So. They, they were, this plan had been in, in motion before I became mayor. And actually it was successful up to the point that they got the city to sell. The system was sold. Well, first- And I, and I blocked the sale. Before you do it, talk about the clandestine memo, the internal CEI memo that uh, was given to you that literally describes sort of a military style operation to debilitate uh, Muni Light. Well, there were two, there, Christina, there were two elements. One was uh, a plan that was a copy of a CEI internal memo that was put in my mailbox at city council. I, I had no idea who gave it to me. And what it revealed was a plan to subvert the media using CEI's advertising dollars. And he actually spelled out that they gave, uh, they wrote editorials and had them published uh, that uh, by the newspaper that they, they wrote news articles that they were able to guide the coverage of, in one direction away from another direction that they were successful in disparaging the municipal uh, power. Uh, it, it, it was a, a celebration of their subversion of the media. Well, that happened at the same time, you know, a few years later, we started to, uh, before the city started to entertain this notion of selling the system, they filed an antitrust suit because the, uh, when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission began to gather information from CEI's internal files uh, relative to their application, for a nuclear power plant, we started to find out that, wait, they were playing all kinds of dirty tricks on the city. The city ends up filing an antitrust lawsuit. And that antitrust lawsuit produced further information in discovery of CEI's internal records that showed the degree to which they were actually involved in sabotaging and uh, and undermining Cleveland's municipal electric system. I, I just want to go down this list because it's unbelievable to me all the different things that they did. And people should listen, pay attention to this because I know it's going on in other places. I just know it. So CEI created blackouts on the Muni system so that people would say, oh my God, this isn't working. We should sell this to CEI, it's not, okay. They blocked a permanent interconnect for five years. And by the way, every time they did the blackouts, they would they would gain customers from Muni because people- Right, they operated the blackout in such a way as to create an outage on the system. They, right. they did it deliberately. Right. 
then they blocked the permanent interconnect saying and and they would say oh yeah 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 we're going to give you the interconnect and then privately in their memos are saying never under no circumstances give that interconnect they tried to price fix they tried to get muni to raise their rates to the same to their to cei's rate engaged in destructive competition against muni they'd sell emergency power to muni at you know, at very high prices. They interfered with Muni operations and maintenance. As you said, they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow them to um, fix generators and broken down equipment. Um, they, they, um, they, inter they refused to wheel power. What's that? Could you explain that? Isolating Muni? Yeah. Uh if uh, you know power, you can purchase power from many different markets, uh, but then you have to bring it in over the lines, right? And that, and that's called wheeling. You know, you you wheel it uh, from. I mean, imagine power in a wheelbarrow. You wheel it from one place to another, right? And they, they wouldn't permit the city to bring the power in from other areas. So they had all this power. They were wielding all this power against against the city light and and so and then they were they started waging this campaign to show that oh muni is failing when it was making a profit you've got and, it and then they had their but then they had their key man their key man mr forbes the president of the county who became sort of your arch nemesis as well as the zen say uh your greatest teacher uh Talk about all the things that Forbes did. I mean, he, every time you came up with a plan, because what CEI did, if I, you know, just to get to a shorthand, is they finally, because they made um, made the city pay for these high prices for these uh, adi this additional power, the city owed them like eighteen million dollars. And so they had to, so what they did was they said, well, if you can't pay us, we're going to have to, you know, you're going to go bankrupt and we're going to have to take you over basically. And you kept coming up with all these different plans. I, I mean, it was amazing the amount of energy and, and intellectual wattage you put in. You came up with all these different plans to thwart them. And so just talk about that. Just talk about every time, because your plans i think you described it better <laughs> your pl your plans were had to go had to be approved by the city council and the president of city council mr forbes just would just say no at every turn he would fix everything so that you would be so just talk about these different plans that you came up with the first one being the eminent domain plan so explain that one that was a big one well the, um, there was a plan prior to my uh, getting into public life to take over CEI using eminent domain. Uh, that lost by one vote in the Cleveland City Council. But you have so, to explain what eminent domain is. Basically, yeah, you have to yeah, show... it, it may, it, it's the power of the state uh, or, or city to be able to take property. You have to pay people for it. But, you know, if there's a freeway going through, they use eminent domain to acquire the land. And uh, that same power of eminent domain can be used to acquire a private utility and to, and to, and to uh, 
claim it for the people of a community. Uh, it, it's a court. Ultimately, the price is set by a court. Or but you have to the, show that this utility is not providing proper service. No, you don't have to show that. I mean, you oh, can, really? You know, no, you do not have to do that. The city oh. can. Uh, uh, the, the right of eminent domain is an uh, inherent right under home rule in most states, which gives cities the right to be able to uh, use the power of eminent domain to acquire land that's for some, uh, 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 you know, important municipal purpose. And, uh, you know, at times that power is misused, but a city can do that. So there was an attempt to use eminent domain to acquire the private utility years before I got into office, but they, the private utility shot that down. But what happened in the in the interaction between CEI and the city of Cleveland is that uh, once I became mayor, uh, there they uh, CEI, which let this debt build under a previous mayor, so they could use the debt as the as a claim that the city has to sell the electric system, pay a light bill. It's like, imagine you have to sell your house to pay your light bill. Right. Well, they, the, uh, they used the pretext of this rising debt. And we, you know, I was able to run the city on a cash basis for two years at, uh, uh, and, and reduce city spending by 18% uh, without reducing services through eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse. We were able also in doing that to save money so I could start to pay off the debt that I had incurred from the previous administration for power for which the city was overcharged. Okay. Right. So, so that was one of the issues that they kept on pressing us on. But in addition to that, it was discovered that we had inherited a, a, a pretty significant deficit from the previous administration Government that using bonds funds for Mayor general Pence. operating purposes, funds that should be used to fix streets were being used for, an, for a padded payroll. The city had, uh, uh, bar there was borrowing that was done by the previous mayor, debts I hadn't even taken out that were due on December 15th, 1978. You're so, talking about Mayor Peck, right? Mayor Perk, right. Perk, yeah. So, so he, he, was, he borrowed all this money, the banks approved of it, they set the repayment schedule, and some of the payments were due on December 15, 1978. And I was at the point where, you know, they, the, we were trying to figure out how, in addition to paying this light bill, in addition to uh, not being able to borrow money, we, we have to come up with $15 million because the banks uh, told, at one point told us, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna renew these notes. So we're figuring out how we're gonna get the money. Well, we, we tried to sell land. We were blocked from doing that. Forbes blocked that. And, and then we tried many other ways of uh, and plans to pay off the debt. We were blocked at every turn. The only, way, the only thing that, uh, that would, be, would have been accepted was, were, were the proceeds from the sale of Muni Light. That was the only thing that was fungible. That was the only, only uh, 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 viable credit that would be obtained. Well, that's what they kept hitting on in the press and also uh, yeah, Forbes. So drum, right, so the drumbeat was there, sell Muni Light in order to pay off, uh, uh, in order to avoid default. Well, on December 15th, 1978, the uh, head of the biggest bank in 
uh, in Ohio, one of the largest banks in America at the time, Cleveland Trust, told me, look, we'll renew the city's credit on loans I hadn't taken out, and we'll even give you $50 million in new credit, but you're going to have to sell that electric system. Turns out the bank was a business partner of the utility. Of CEI, yeah. Right, of CEI. I said no. The bank refused to renew the city's credits. All the other banks went along. We went into default. The people of Cleveland then agreed with my plan to get us out of default by passing an income tax. The bank said, okay, you pass the tax. We'll put, we'll, you'll, you know, we'll pay off the default. The people passed the tax. The banks reneged on their promise to take us out of default. And it continued to insist that Muni Light be sold, even though the people in the same election had approved keeping Muni Light by a two to one vote. So this is the level of corruption that went on and the continual moving of the goalposts and the changing of the sidelines. And, and it didn't matter, you know, I, I'll say, look, I can rate, win a rigged game, just tell me what the rules are. They kept changing the game after we won it. Yeah, yeah, well, what was interesting was when you finally made that deal, I mean, it, it was terrible. One of the things that happened that really struck me was that when that friend of yours, that businessman friend of yours brought you in, he says, listen, you got to do something. You got to try and avoid this default. Come and meet with the head of, uh, of, of Cleveland Trust. And, and so you did, you did. And, and then your friend who was always backing you up for keeping uni like public, you know, keeping you and not selling it, all of a sudden he's on this guy's side, on the Cleveland Trust guy's side. And, he, and he's saying, yeah, you really should do it. You really should do it. And he put you under tremendous pressure. I mean, on, you, you ended up in the hospital bleeding out of various orifices because of this whole thing, by the way. But anyway, you, you walk, and I mean, I, it was just crushing. And then you find out that, that, that the bank owns like, 29% or 20, I forget what percentage of his business, right. you know, a guy who was a friend of yours. So, I mean, it was just incredible, the betrayals that you also had, had, had to put up with. And the fact that, you know, then they come up with this thing, oh, well, okay, if you can get a referendum and plus, uh, if, you, if you can get a referendum from the people not to sell Muni and a tax hike, which of course is never something the public likes to agree to do, okay? And you ended up, you put this tremendous energy into going out there and convincing people to, to agree to both. And they didn't expect that. I think they thought you were not gonna make it. But the one secret that you have always had, and it's like an open secret to your success with people, getting people to do what's in their best interest really under incredible odds and pressure is that you're the guy who goes door to door to door to door you use your shoe leather and you go out there and talk to people and that's how you got that tax hike and the okay not to sell muni and i don't think they expected that and that's also i think when the assassination attempts started ratch ratcheting up right I mean, the hitman was meeting with Mr. Local Mob Boss. You know, you were told he met with him once, he met with him twice. So, okay, so talk about post default, what happened? 
So we go into default. Um, the banks did not call the loans. They kept us in a kind of a suspended uh, animation financially. Uh, Why do you think they did that? Why do you oh, think? They, because, I mean, it was very clear. They did it to try to uh, set the stage for knocking me out of office. I mean, this was a coup. There's just no question about it. And they didn't care if they had to damage the city to do it. Oh, by the way, when you became mayor, like just literally a few, was it a few months, five months in, they were trying to recall you? They, they had this whole well, thing. Well, you know, the word was out. The recall was underway a month, you know, less than a month uh, after I was, well, about a, about a month after I was elected. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the thing is that uh, they determined they were going to keep the city into default, no, no matter what happened, even though, you know, the people passed the tax to pay off the defaulted notes. And, and again, I have to say on loans that I had take, taken out, we were the only city that ran, that ran on a cash basis, didn't borrow any money at all, none. And um, yeah, and meanwhile, they're saying you're in default. How can that be? Well, you know, we're in default on loans that they gave without uh, uh, an assurance they could be repaid, but we were going to repay them uh, with money from the sale of city property and other, you know, and other resources. That Forbes. But that wasn't of interest to them. I mean, we, we could have offered all kinds of city assets. They wanted the light system, nothing else, and, and nothing else would suffice to avoid default, but the sale of Muni light and nothing else would suffice to take us out of default after the default, other than the sale of Muni light or my leaving office or both. And so, um, uh, so after the city went into default, default, the bank kept the city into default and didn't take it out until a new mayor came in. Uh, you know, this was a strike by credit. It was uh, an, an illegal extortionate interference in the inner workings of a, of a city. And it, you know, it was my duty and on my watch to make sure that the rights of people to have an electric system they could call their own were not gonna be stripped just simply because a bank determined on behalf of their corporate partner that that was the price of renewing the city's credit. Well, you were told right before the default you know, I think it was, was it Forbes who was telling you, you know, you've got to be crazy, man, because you're going to lose your job as if your job was the ultimate thing. And, and well, well you know, look, I knew, I, I knew if I made the deal with this Cleveland establishment, I was set politically. You know, uh, look, I was 31 years old uh, when I was elected mayor and I, had I been, um, uh, had I made the deal, it very easily would have been Ohio's governor. And there was a young person in Arkansas by the name of Bill Clinton who became governor at a very early age. And we know where he was headed from a very small state. So, you know, to, to, um, uh, to be politically prominent in a state like Ohio and have the support of all these interest groups is not a small matter. Uh, you know, that's kind of how William McKinley got his start. Um, you know, so I, I understood what they were laying out for me uh, when they were asking me to sell the municipal electric system. And yet, I also, I also, Christina, understood that I had another purpose in life. It just wasn't to, you know, advance myself. It was to, to defend the, the rights of the people who put me there. 
And, and if that meant that I had to put my career on the line, well, I'm going to do it. It's like you either stand for something or, or you fall for anything. And so I, I decided that I, you know, I knew I had to take a stand. Um, that, you know, and it wasn't as though we didn't try to work out a different way, as you pointed out. You know, we, we presented one plan after another. They didn't want anything but the sale of Muni Life. And so, you know, even I will tell you that even, even when I was finally finishing the book, uh, you know, writing from my house here in Cleveland, I'd read about, I'd read what I'd written and relive that in doing so. And I just feel like, gee whiz, you know, these people apparently thought that because I was a young person that they could just uh, and, and, you know, certainly politically ambitious, uh, that they thought that I was just going to bend. And then when I didn't, they just did everything they could to make it impossible for the city to be able to stabilize. They kept destabilizing the city. And this whole thing, before we get to um, how, because the happy ending is uh, Muni Light, is not only not sold, but it's thriving. Three hundred, you know, it's on on track to save Cleveland residents three hundred million dollars. Okay, um, this is the story I think that is being replicated in other places that people aren't paying enough attention to, which is the privatization of. Um, Right. Of city government, basically, of government. So could you just talk about that, John? Because that is, I think, a very dangerous uh, thing for the average citizen. And you can tell how much it's wanted by the example of you being a target for assassination on numerous occasions. Well, Christina, uh, the mayor who founded Muni Light back at the turn of the 20th century, uh, his name was Tom L. Johnson. And he said that um, he, he wrote in a, in a book called My Story that was published in 1919. I believe in uh, uh, public ownership of all municipal facilities, of, of waterworks, of uh, parks, of electric systems, because if you do not own them, they will in time own you. They'll rule your politics, corrupt your institutions, and finally destroy your liberties. Now, that was what Mayor Johnson said over 110 years ago, and the same is true today. There will be an increased effort to privatize municipal assets after the American Rescue Plan money runs out. There'll be an effort to try to tell cities, look, the level of spending that you've just increased with the help of this federal largesse can be accomplished, but you're gonna to have to sell this asset or that asset. Uh, you might have to sell your electric system, your water system, your sewer system. And what happens, these privatizers, once they do that, they jack up the rates. And something that people paid for once already, over many years, generations uh, of people paid for a city facility will end up having to be paid for again, rates will go up, 
and sooner or later, the cost of the service will be confiscatory. So, you know, the, the whole idea about public ownership is, to, is connected directly to a democratic tradition to control over our own destiny. And what happens is when it's privatizers come in, uh, we lose that control. And, and, our, and, our, and our cities become, and our country becomes ever more undemocratic. So the book essentially, The Division of Light and Power is a, um, is a cautionary tale on what can happen if you don't fight back, if you don't, if, if you just let people take away public rights and um, uh, our democracy is at risk. And so uh, the book uh, hopefully will encourage people to be alert as citizens to look for all the different ways in which uh, these swindles occur and to be able to uh, see that people did stand up. They did fight back. They were successful. Uh, it's not as though there's no price to be paid, but let me tell you, uh, you know, today there is a municipally owned electric system and, uh, and we continue a tradition of public power. Now, um, across the country, you made a list in your book of um, all the towns in the various states that have been uh, taken over by private uh, concerns. And I think Ohio has the second largest number of privatized uh, utilities in, in the United States, right? The first one I believe is it's North Carolina has quite a few towns and cities. Well, that, that, was, that list yeah. was, uh, was um, those utilities that I noted that were owned by the people and then taken over by private utilities prior to the Muni Light battle. So what I established there was, you know, when I stepped into this, it was commonplace to privatize a utility and, uh, uh, and it was accepted. Uh, and, and, to, and, and so we in Cleveland began to go against the tide of what had been this trend. And yes, in Ohio, some of the largest utilities in Ohio were just simply a, 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 an aggregate of what once had been owned by the public. And let's go even deeper here. How are utilities formed? The right of utility franchises vested in the people. Those, the utilities, the people can give that right through their city councils to a corporation in exchange, theoretically, for low cost, uh, efficient, uh, a reliable service. Uh, but what happens often is that once these utilities get the franchise and have a monopoly, they are able to charge whatever the traffic will bear and they get the permission of the Public Utilities Commission, which generally are uh, subservient to uh, investor-owned utilities. But see, this is where the book, I mean, it actually becomes maddening when you consider that CEI was formed through the permission of the people. They were formed through having a charter with the state of Ohio. They were formed out of a public process. And at the same time, they try to use that very process to nullify the rights of anybody else to do that. Well, you know, the big problem is, is you have in, for, in Cleveland, as the example, this consortium of banks, okay, who are controlling 
people in the Cleveland government, okay? And my question to you is, for example, the Utilities Commissioner Gall, I think his name was, and Forbes. Forbes was a guy who was representing one of the poorest sections of Cleveland who's in bed with these people. What were they getting out of it? What were they getting? You know, I, never, I, I never speculated on that and I still don't. Um, it's just for me, the question for me wasn't who they, who they were. It's who I am. You know, I mean, yeah, but don't you think there has to be accountability for that kind of corruption? Otherwise, oh, it just, you know, well, let me tell you, let me tell you something. Um, uh, I was very careful in writing this book to let the reader decide those questions that you just asked. Um, you know, I, I took my stand. I did what I felt needed to be done. Uh, the others have to account for their conduct. So your, your whole outlook is I hoe my row and you will hoe yours and. That's right. That's right. I, I think that we, we must be very careful about uh, uh, judging people's motives, but to let the facts uh, reveal uh, so that people can make their own decisions. You know, in the book, I felt it was really important to be able to um, hew to a very straightforward, narrow uh, um, uh, account from my point of view, backed up by voluminous evidence, you know, as you know, rather than to judge someone. I, 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 but, I, but it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, let's talk about this for a minute because one of the reasons why now we depend on whistleblowers as opposed to journalists these days is because there's no accountability for when people lie, for when people are corrupt. There, there's no accountability. Don't you? For example, let's just take the bank crisis. D don't you think that if a few of those executives had been sent to jail for 30 years or more for ripping off the entire globe, that 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 those shenanigans would stop? I think. You know what? Let me tell you, uh, I'm, I'm with you 100 percent. I would have sent Brock Weir to jail. But, you know, we were the times that we were in were were such that that was considered normal cleveland was the number three corporate city it was considered somehow that corporations had a right to tell city hall what to do they had a right to make decisions that should rightfully be made by the people now while they had their supporters in the political community i wasn't one of them i offered a vigorous defense of the public interest that was my point of view that was my obligation uh, but, uh, you know, as far as, um, and, and I mean, the, the book, The Division of Light and Power is a whistleblower's dream because I put it all out there. Yes, the you did. That, that no insider, to my knowledge, 
nobody who's actually held the office of mayor of a city has ever documented the kinds of um, corruption that that go on. But this stuff didn't start necessarily inside City Hall. It was a process that that when corporations annex City Hall and public officials are friendly with those corporations, the taxpayers better hold on to their wallets. And so my job wasn't to uh, be some kind of a uh, uh, of a uh, of a of a carping uh, um, uh, um, hectoring uh, outsider. I was I was inside, and I defied those powers that thought they had the right to run the city in their own interest. And so you know I'm to me um, uh, you know I'm I'm very careful in that book about judging people i you you know the reader can do that that's not my job again i mean you mentioned brock weir just for the audience brock weir was the ceo of of cei of of uh of cleveland trust yeah and 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 which was in of, of cleveland trust which was in bed with cei and and this consortium of banks that uh were trying basically to control uh control cleveland but the reason why I'm saying this is because I feel like your experience and what you documented can be extrapolated to what goes on in federal government. Absolutely. You know, the same thing. And that's 100%. huge. That's huge. Because there the stakes are, you know, going to wars for making money. Christina? You, are, uh, you have hit the most important and vital link between what happened in Cleveland and its relevance nationally, uh, because the same uh, uh, culture exists on a federal level. Uh, you know, when I went to Congress years later, uh, what I learned in Cleveland helped me understand the lies that were being told to get us ready to go to war against Iraq. I, I, I wrote a memo back in October 2002 saying, look, there's no proof that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11 with Al-Qaeda's role in 9-11. Iraq had nothing to do with the anthrax attack on the Capitol. Iraq didn't have the, me the means. Uh, they didn't have the intention of attacking the U.S. They, there were, there's, no, there's no proof that they had weapons. At that point, they had weapons of mass destruction. So why are we attacking them? What is this about? And you know, I mean, I was able to, based on my Cleveland experience, to go right into it. And frankly, to you know, it's now almost 20 years later. Everything that I said turned out to be true. We should have never gone to war. That was a corrupt thing to do. Some people made a ton of money as a result of it, and uh, uh, you know, and and. The American people were absolutely uh, misled uh, into a war that we should have never fought. Now, uh, is that that is the ultimate form of corruption, by the way, the ultimate form of corruption in government is using the military force of a government to enlist uh, uh, men and women to go and fight on behalf of that government and to kill innocent people on behalf of that government. And so you put the lives of our men and women at risk 
for nothing. You put the lives of innocent well, people. Well, for your own profit. A million innocent people lost their lives, at least in Iraq, as a result of the big lie. So, you know, I go from Cleveland. And, and frankly, I want you to know this, that that's my next book. Okay. Okay. It's about, it's about what you learned about who was doing what. Uh, that is it. my book. So well, you, can take, you can take the division of light and power and the way it was structured, and you'll you'll see what the next book's going to be about, and it's about the Iraq War. I can't wait to see that because I personally, okay, um, had a documentary that I was working on for Dan Rather Reports. Uh, I had it shut down <laughs> when I was looking at the run up to Iraq, and. Um, I had called uh, Cheney's office to fact check something. And uh, the next day or so, my show was uh, shut down. This is, this is why, and I'm sorry about that. This is why I put up articles of impeachment against both President Bush and Vice President Cheney because of what we were told to take us into war. Uh, you know, we should have a discussion about that later on. Because okay, because look, the reason why I asked you about who should go to jail and so on, and you keep telling me I'm not, I don't want to judge people, but there, Dennis, there Nobody has to goes, be, there hey, has to be accountability. You know, what, you know who, who was it? Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the woman whose family owned all those hotels, uh, Lord, uh, what, what was her name? Where she said only only little people pay taxes. Oh, uh, um, oh, Helmsley. Was yeah, Helmsley? yeah, Leona Helmsley Leona. said only, only little people pay taxes. She said, "Well, let me tell you the way it works in our in our country. The pe the perpetrators never go to jail. They're, they're, somebody down the line will, uh, and and that's 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 another story for another day." about how our justice uh, system is, is excellent uh, for looking at some kinds of crime, uh, but usually uh, it's for those people who don't have the resources to defend themselves. I mean, unless it's so uh, egregious, like, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, some of the stock trades that went on on Wall Street. But I, I, I you know, look, we, the justice that's available in our society is always questionable. And, and you know, I've never seen anybody uh, prosecuted at a high level for taking us into wars based on lies. But should, that's they the, be, should they be? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the conundrum right there is how do you turn that ship around so that there is accountability? Because only with accountability will it end. Congress approved the war, okay? I try to warn my colleagues, don't go along with this. But you know, the book, you start with the division of light and power and you see the way it's structured. And I'm gonna take the same approach. I, I actually have gathered over, when I was in Congress, I gathered over a hundred volumes that were about this, each one about this thick uh, of information. Uh, some of it from the run up to the war and some of the early days of the war to be able to uh, see uh, the the grant to get the granular detail of the misinformation that was coming out 
And, and the misinformation that was fed to the American people was not unlike the process of misinformation that was fed to the people of the city of Cleveland that got them to believe that the sale of Muni Light at one point was what had to happen. The fact that we had to re we were able to reverse that in a campaign was an extraordinary development. And the book explains that too. So, no. you know, you know I, I really, I, I'm gonna have to go in a minute, um, uh, Christina, uh, but, I, but I, I really appreciate uh, this kind of a discussion because you are so knowledgeable about uh, this, this, how these things are structured. And, 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 and unless you have the ability to be able to analyze in a structured way, almost forensically, you don't know where it leads. This is, I, it took me 40 years to write this book. Uh, you know, first of all, because it was such an emotional <laughs> um, um, experience, but, and I, and I wasn't satisfied with draft after draft. But I will tell you, as I slowed everything down and actually started to research the background of what I was presented with, it was horrific what they did to the city of Cleveland. Absolutely horrific. And, uh, and you know, and all those people, you know, most of them are gone. And, well, now yeah. you're going to move on to some grand scale, super grand scale, horrific, and I can't wait to uh, to read that one. I we are out of time, and I really want to thank you for this, and uh, I want to urge all my viewers and listeners to to get your book because it's a real, it's a political thriller wrapped in a huge uh, lesson, eye opening lesson that everybody needs to see. So thank you so much. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Christina, and, and please uh, uh, tell your people to get the Division of Light and Power.